Welcome back to Eurodollar University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. Eurodollar University, our professor is Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. Jeff, at the Alhambra Partners blog, you recently told us about oil and how it is involved in where we are right now with the economy. Oil prices are high, like they were in 2008, like they were in 1979, moments before recession. We've got a treasury curve inversion recession, oil. Can you set the scene as what we're going to be talking about in this particular piece and what oil has to do with it? I think the big question everybody wants answered is why, right? Why are gasoline prices going so high? And everybody's got an answer, right? Because you've heard them all over the media. It's Biden's fault. He did this. It's the lack of the Keystone Pipeline. The oil producers aren't using leases. The government is regulating, it's over-regulating. The climate change people won't allow fossil fuel. There are any number of reasons out there that people have put forward to explain why oil prices have gone so high when it's really a very, very simple thing. And as the chart we're going to go over shows, oil production in the U.S., as well as outside the U.S., which I don't show, but you can look at OPEC production too, has never recovered since the 2020 pandemic overreaction, recession, uh, financial crisis, which is a very important part of our story here, March 2020 financial crisis too, oil supply has been restrained. And as anybody who has even an inkling of sense about basic economics knows, constrained supply with rising demand, what has to happen? The only way to reconcile those two things is for the price to go up. Yeah, I think people would be surprised. We just showed that chart of how oil production in the United States has completely, well, it's terrible, completely fallen off, never recovered. I guess halfway back to the top, 60% of the way back to where we were before Corona, January 2020. But you remember, we live in a nonlinear world. Mm -hmm. So it's not just being below the last peak. It's also being below where oil production, quote unquote, should have been had it not been interrupted. So we also have, what is it, about a 7% gap between where oil and gas production is today. And I hate that the Federal Reserve combined oil and natural gas. It used to be just oil, but their sub-index now has natural gas too. So that's what the, we got to go on. So it's 7% less production in uh, March of 2022 compared to January of 2020. So there's two years less production in the United States when the United States was on its way to becoming by far the world's biggest energy producer before 2020, that production fell off and never came back. Why is that the case? And you would think small economics, right? As the price goes, goes up, that's supposed to entice more production so that we get producers jumping back into the market, expanding supply of oil, becoming more elastic in the supply, matching demand, making sure that prices don't go too high so as to become recessionary and disruptive. Now, this quote I'm going to read to the audience comes from your article that you posted on the 19th of April, 2022. The title is, I told you it wasn't money printing, how the Fed helped cause but can't solve our current inflation. And here's, it's a very interesting dynamic, a paradox here. Or like perhaps it's our implicit assumption about what the Fed does and how it caused inflation. And you bring that to our attention. The problem 
as with so many things around the world's economy, is the Fed, okay? But for vastly different reasons than you might think or have been told. Everyone says consumer prices and CPIs were caused by money printing. Right, right, that's what we are told. When in fact, the lack of money and global liquidity, rather than anything else, has prevented crude supply and thus created, quote unquote, inflation. I think I know what you're saying, Jeff, but it, you know, explain it more detail. Give us more detail. We're going to have to go through the story here to get to that point. But yeah, you're right. Let's start out with what everybody believes, which is the Fed printed money or the federal government or the Fed monetized the debt that the federal government printed and then handed to consumers. And therefore, we've got our classic monetary case for inflation. It's there. There's the money printing. Well, as we've gone over for the last couple of years, no, there isn't money there. Bond markets, uh, financial indications, tick data, whatever it be. Uh, the euro dollar system says, no, 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 there was no money printing. It didn't happen. So how can we blame the Fed for our current predicament for CPI that doesn't involve money? And it's actually quite a bit easier than you think. Once you understand what the Fed has done, what it actually does do, and what it actually does not do. Bank reserves are not money in the system. So quantitative easing did not flood the world with liquidity, either in 2020, 2021, or in the prior episodes of quantitative easing beginning in 2009 through 2014. And 2014 is a very crucial moment in our current story. Because if you go back in time to 2014, the Fed said much the same thing. The economy's gangbusters. It's great. The best jobs market in decades. We've got now trillions in bank reserves. So there's no possible way that we could have a monetary liquidity problem. But yet, warning signs all throughout 2013, right from the very first day of 2014, suddenly the Chinese yuan starts to, to, to tank, the dollar rises, the uh, treasury nominal yields start to fall, the yield curve flattens. So all throughout 2014, really those same deflationary indications. Then we get to July 2014, and suddenly oil prices start to fall. And not only do oil prices start to fall, the prices on junk corporates, junk syndicated loans, junk leverage loans that are massively tied to the energy sector, because in the absence of mortgages after the financial crisis, what little credit had been extended up until 2014 had been extended largely to finance the oil sector. So a lot of junk corporates, low quality corporate debt of all types, junk bonds, leveraged loans, uh, syndicated loans, was all tied to energy prices. And then bam, July 2014, oil prices start to sink a little bit at first, and then it starts to snowball. And as we went over a couple episodes ago, October 15th, 2014, a collateral day when you realize illiquidity in junk bond markets, along with growing risk aversion, usually means a deep monetary failure in the form of securities transformation, repo, collateral for collateral swaps, all that really good, interesting stuff starts to really go wrong in the fall of 2014. Yes, yes. Continuing. And how do we segue? What's the, what's the, what's the punchline to, to today? That? Okay. So yes. what's specifically the punch? The punchline here is as all those monetary breakdowns take place, it produces eventually a massive wave or a very substantial wave of bankruptcies, defaults, wipeouts, investors being very, very unhappy with the performance of all those trillions in bank reserves because the Federal Reserve can claim all it wants that markets are resilient 
and the financial system's great and money is oversupplied when they're going bankrupt because of liquidations forced upon them, not just in the United States, but all throughout the rest of the world that maybe the public wasn't aware of, but they sure as hell were. So for all the claims that money was sufficient, markets were functioning normally, we have no uh, mountains of evidence that wasn't true. And it really focused its bad attention and bad intentions on the energy sector. And that's something that I imagine investors, bondholders, leverage syndicators, they all probably are going to remember that. The uh, differences between what was promised, what was forecast, what was predicted, and what actually happened that led to a lot of catastrophic losses all across the energy sector. And are we expecting that something similar is going to take place this time around or that something's... Well, if we're not, I mean, we got a reminder, right, Emil, just a couple years later. Now, it wasn't quite the same in the energy sector because we didn't have the same level of defaults because a lot of the low, low quality producers were wiped out in 2015 and 2016. But what happened to oil prices in and after globally synchronized growth? Globally synchronized growth here again, just like 2014. Here we are in 2017. Economists saying everything's grand. Everything's great. The economy is going to be robust forever. Uh, the market, money supply, liquidity, globally, everything's fantastic. It's so fantastic. The Federal Reserve is confident enough to start restricting and reducing its balance sheet, cutting back on the level of bank reserve. And while the Fed is promising all this stuff, while economists are saying the economy is great, it's globally synchronized growth, as we've gone over more times than we care to remember or count, that was never the case inside the monetary system, inside the real economy globally. 2018 was a rash of one mess escalating into another, escalating into another, into another. And eventually, you get to the summer of 2018 and the fall of 2018, oil prices crash yet again. So even if there wasn't the wave of bankruptcies that there was in 2015 and 2016, people in the oil sector, investors in the oil sector are saying, that's twice. These people said one thing. They said the economy is going to be great. They said to the markets and money, and we wouldn't be forced into liquidations. They said all of those things twice. And it happened where if we were as extended as we were in 2014, we would have gotten our face ripped off for a second time. Second time. People in the oil market, investors, bondholders, banks, syndicated credit. Remember, 2014, not good. 2018, not good. We see a pattern re repeating here. A pattern seems to be developing here. So what, let's fast forward to March of 2020. And so you're saying that the third time is not a charm this time around again. And that's what that chart was telling us at the beginning of the show. Prices are up. Great. Oil producers should be expanding, uh, taking out loans, asking for credit. But taking a look at this chart, I don't see any sort of surge in oil production. And, and why? Why not? Maybe is there a survey of oil producers <laughs> somewhere that asks them, hey, you know, what, what's, what's going on? Do you feel like expanding this year? Do you feel like why would you not be expanding? Is there some sort of survey where we can ask oil producers? Right? So, doesn't that make most sense? I mean, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody says, you know, this is what's going on in the oil market. Why don't we just ask the oil producers, why aren't you expanding production? Because by every legitimate, practical reason, any rational reason that we can think of, 
you guys should be going gangbusters. This should be drill, baby, drill part two, right? And it's not. Well, and so why say, isn't it? When you say we can think of, you're saying as the Federal Reserve the mainstream, mainstream right. economics. Right. Those who believe the Fed, those who believe that money's, money supply, liquidity, all those fables that we've been told, especially about March 2020. Let's face it. March 2020 was another disaster for the Fed. Bank reserves were into the trillions. They had been buying. They were, you know, not QE5 was ongoing at that moment. They did all of these, you know, these repo mimics and all of these other quote unquote liquidity programs. And yet the entire global uh, global financial system got wrecked anyway. And so, again, if you're an investor, particularly the oil sector, you're watching this happen for a third time. What are you thinking? You're thinking, Jesus, all the stuff we hear in the media, it's all garbage. It doesn't work in practice. Now, it's fine for Jay Powell to make these mistakes over and over again. It's fine for people in Bloomberg and CNBC to report it wrong repeatedly because they don't lose any money. They don't lose their shirt when it goes bad. They're fine. They can continue to spout the same mainstream nonsense and convention over and over again. But you can't afford to make three massive mistakes like that in a row if you're an oil sector investor. Regardless of what you think about uh, the fundamentals, you got to sit there and think when these markets start to go bad, they go bad very quickly. And it ends up being very, 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 very bad for a lot of us in the oil path. So March 2020 was another watershed of moment. In fact, it was the watershed of moment because it was strike three for the Fed. And that's what created our quote unquote inflation. And you don't have to take my word for it. Let's ask the oil producers themselves. Well, the Dallas Federal Reserve does just that every quarter because obviously they're in Texas. Oil very important to the Texas economy. Even at, right, everybody at the Dallas Fed don't they wear cowboy hats and smell of oil? And I mean, it's, it's <laughs> you got to believe that even at the uh, Federal Reserve branch headquarters in Dallas, there's a big oil derrick. It's probably inside an oil derrick. Oh, that's funny. There's a there's a joke here to be made, perhaps uh, with Daniel <laughs> DiMartino Booth in a cowboy hat because she wrote oh, that's that right. book. We, sh- we should ask her. Absolutely. What, what did, did she go to work riding a horse, wearing a cowboy hat and uh, drilling oil along the way? A cowboy hat would look very good on Miss Booth. OK, so they ask all sorts of questions. And Jeff, which one should we go over? For example, there's one that asks them whether or not they're going to increase production. Yeah, that's an important question, right? So one of the first questions that Dallas Fed asked these, it's not just oil producers in Texas and Oklahoma in the, in the Dallas Fed region, it's all across the country. So this is a national survey. They're asking all the uh, domestic oil producers that they, can, that they can possibly get in touch with. And the first question they ask is, what do you, do, what do you foresee about doing for your own production going forward this year? says here, half of large producers, along with slightly more than a quarter of small producers, tell the Fed branch they're expecting no more than a paltry 5% additional production, despite prices being at sky-high levels. What? Yeah, and it's already... Wait, wait a minute, what? Because this was a survey conducted in March of 2022, after oil prices had peaked at $120 something a barrel in, in the wake of Russia-Ukraine, and they come back down during that during the survey period in question. But still, we're triple digit oil here. And the oil producers are saying the major producers are saying at most five percent. I think it was twenty five percent. were saying no change in production. So, I mean, this is mind boggling. Oil prices are high. And part of the rest of the survey is about, you know, what are the break even points for new production? 
And most of those are being met. And I think they asked the question too about whether current production, current wells that are being used, the current oil price covers their operational cost. Everybody said all our costs are absolutely covered at oil prices at the current level. So why aren't they produce? Why are they not? Not only did they not produce last year, they're telling you this year they're not going to produce either. And it's just we're missing something big here. According to the same survey, while every producer says current oil prices cover existing well operations, they might not necessarily cover new drilling. And then we get to perhaps the most important point, and that is which of the following is the primary reason that publicly traded oil producers are restraining growth despite high oil prices? Yeah, what is the punchline? What is the answer here? And I think most people have probably figured it out by the way we've set up our discussion. We've kind of we've kind of let it down to this all pointing in this direction. The surprise shock answer here. It is not government regulations. Nope. It is not lack of access to financing. Nope. It is not environmental, social, and governance issues. The reason why, overwhelmingly, investor pressure to maintain capital discipline. What does that mean? And it was it wasn't over just over. I think it was sixty percent, almost two thirds of publicly traded oil producers said investor capital discipline. And so, bondholders have told producers. Don't you dare go chasing these high oil prices because you'll just lead us down. You'll lead us off the same cliff that we've seen twice before. In other words, the financial markets, bondholders, bank creditors, syndicated loans, leveraged loan providers and packagers are all saying we don't believe oil prices are going to stay high enough for your undisciplined drill baby drill to pay off and not lead us into bankruptcy. It's really that simple. Once bitten, twice shy. So what is twice bitten and then a third time? It's really investors are saying we don't trust the Fed. We don't trust liquidity. We don't trust these mainstream plabulum about all sorts of, hey, everything's great, if not over great. We just don't trust it because we have every reason to suspect because recent history has shown that these things all fall apart. And when they do, it tends to end up in only the worst types of results for especially those in the oil sector. Consumer prices are high in big part, large part, because oil prices are high, not only, but in big part. Mainstream opinion is because the Federal Reserve has printed so much money. Incredibly, here at Eurodollar University, it's the opposite. It's because the Federal Reserve has not provided or guided or encouraged the creation of money which would help financing the expansion of production and thus bring down prices and thus bring down consumer prices. Did I summarize that correctly, that's Jeff? It. And is there anything else we want to no, say? No, that's it in a nutshell. And, that, you know, look, there are other factors to consider, too. We're not saying this is the only thing that's happening, but take it from the mouths of the oil producers themselves. They are saying their biggest constraint by far, way above everything else, is the fact that investors and bondholders and syndicated loaners do not want them to produce anymore because they don't believe oil prices are going to stay high enough, long enough for them to avoid another 2014 type disaster. 